Hi, and welcome to the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. On today's show, we are going to be talking about SCOTUS's decision not to hear the Aloha bed and breakfast case involving a small B&B that received a public accommodation smackdown from Hawaii. Then we are going to talk about a decision out of the Fifth Circuit Uh, which involved an Eighth Amendment uh, claim against cruel and unusual punishment in uh, denying gender confirmation surgery to a transgender inmate. And finally, we will talk about the uh, religious objectors who have rushed to federal court to block the EEOC's ability to come after employers when they fire LGBT people. With us is New York Law School Professor Art Leonard, chief editor of Legal's LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest LGBT legal developments here and abroad. Hi, Art. How you doing? Okay. Good. And and it's a spring day here in New York City, and the construction workers are at it again outside our window. But it wouldn't be New York without it. Most people hear uh, birds, maybe in some parts of the country they hear chickens and roosters. Crickets. Crickets. We hear construction. Right. At all times. <laughs> at, at least the uh, vessel is done being constructed, I right. guess. And, right. uh, everyone's here taking selfies of the vessel in Hudson Yard, so if you haven't gotten it... Uh, come and get yours now so you can fill up my Instagram feed. Okay, so Art, talk to us about the first issue that we have here. We haven't heard much from the Supreme Court with respect to many of the LGBT cases that keep piling up on its front steps, but we did receive some good news on March 18th when the court announced that it was not going to review this uh, decision by Hawaii's Intermediate Court of Appeals um, which ruled in favor of the couple that was discriminated by the against by the bed and breakfast. So tell us a little bit about this case and why it's so good. Well, you've you've already told us so much. Oh but well, now we're done. <laughs> this is this is uh, the case of Cervelli against Aloha Bed and Breakfast. Okay. Uh, Diane Cervelli and Keiko Buford, a committed lesbian couple, wanted to take a trip to Hawaii. And they wanted to rent in a bed and breakfast. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were visiting some friends, uh, but they didn't want to burden their friends. So uh, through a website, they located Aloha Bed and Breakfast, uh, which is located in the Mariner's Ridge section of Hawaii Kai. Okay. And uh, Phyllis Young, uh, who is the owner, operates this uh, bed and breakfast uh, in her home, which has four bedrooms available for rent. And she... uh, she claims that when she turned them down, uh, telling uh, uh, Cervelli on the phone, quote, we're strong Christians. I'm very uncomfortable in accepting a reservation from you. Uh, they're strong Christians. Weak Christians would give in, you know. But uh, at any rate, uh, she believed that she was entitled to an exemption from compliance with the non-discrimination requirements as a residential landlord. And so the issue, first issue in the case, which is an issue of construction of state law, which would not be subject to Supreme Court review in any event, uh, was whether her operation was a public accommodation or was residential housing. 
And that's what a lot of the intermediate Hawaii Court of Appeals decision was focused on, uh, finding that it was a public accommodation. They said, you know, you're on the web, you've opened your house, you have 100 to 200 customers a year. That's not <laughs> that residential. That are intimate, right. intimate uh, right. relations right. or whatever. And, and, and then turning to her constitutional arguments, her due process argument was this is the right she of She wanted privacy. the Supreme Court to hear that issue. Right. Well, no, not that issue. She wanted them to hear the right of privacy issue okay. under the due process clause. Right. She said, uh, you know, freedom of association, due process, privacy, I shouldn't have to bring lesbians into my home. Okay. And the response of the Hawaii courts was, what do you mean your home? This is a business. Right. You so, happen to live there and right. run it. <laughs> but it's a business. Okay, uh, so, that so that's that's one issue, and I didn't think the Supreme Court was likely to grant her on that issue. <laughs> but she says, I want a First Amendment exemption from right. complying with the Hawaii human rights law on this. And that would require the court basically to overrule Employment Division versus Smith, mm-hmm. at least uh, theoretically. And in his concurring opinion in Masterpiece Cake Shop last June, just, Justice Gorsuch suggested implied that it was time for the court to reconsider Employment Division versus Smith wow. yep. and perhaps restore the prior state of the law, which means there's a compelling interest test. Uh, so, uh, and the and Employment be, Division versus right. Smith that we've talked about before. Right. And, uh, yeah. and we're going to be talking about it again case. today, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then the RIFRAs came out of the federal government. Right. And, in resp- and, and in the response. state governments as well. Now we have right. uh, about half the states have rifers as well. Right. Uh, Hawaii is not among them. So, uh, so there's this First Amendment free exercise question, and uh, the court denied cert. That wasn't so surprising. I think the fact that they denied cert in this, but they still haven't made any announcement on the cert petition in the Oregon wedding cake case. Right. Uh, if they're inclined to revisit this issue of religious exemptions for anti-discrimination laws, I think that's the case that they're more likely to do it on. But uh, just a reminder to folks uh, that their last uh, conference of March was on March 29th, and they announced the results on April 1st. Mm -hmm. And for April Fool's Day, they didn't announce any results on any of the LGBTQ-related cases, and they're not having another conference till April 12th. Okay. So that means that all of the cases we've been following have been deferred to April 12th, plus two new ones that are listed for April 12th. We've got uh, one of them is uh, a case of a life inmate, or actually a death row inmate in South Dakota, Mr. Rines, yeah. who was convicted of murder by a jury way back in 1993. Uh-huh. And... Uh, when they were at the penalty phase, the jury had already convicted him of murder, and the choices for the jury were life without parole or the death sentence. And the jury sent out a note to the judge saying, we feel we can't adequately make this choice. We're not well enough informed about what the conditions would be in prison. And they asked a whole bunch of questions. And uh, Mr. Rines and his attorney were very perturbed because they thought the questions implied that the jury was trying to decide whether as a gay man they had to execute him because he'd have too much fun in prison for the rest of his life, surrounded in an all-male environment, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And he tried to raise that issue uh, on on appeal of his uh, death sentence, and uh, he got nowhere. And then he tried on a habeas petition. He got nowhere. And then... uh, and he was going through successive ranks of uh, pro bono and appointed counsel 
And finally, someone said, well, you know, we should talk to those jurors and ask why they sent that question out. And it, it turned out that the jurors, there were some jurors who were making jokes about the gay defendant and stuff mm-hmm. and, and saying, oh, he'd have a great time. And, uh, and so they said they have all this new information. They have all these jury interviews, and they want to amend their habeas petition to add the stuff, and mm-hmm. the court refuses. They say you get one shot at a habeas petition. Uh, and he tried multiple times. He was rejected by the district court and the Eighth Circuit from reconsidering this. And even once, I mean, he had a cert petition last spring that before was turned the Supreme down. Court that before they the Supreme said, Court. Yeah. The difference is that that was before the Supreme Court issued a decision last spring saying that they can open up the jury procedure if there's evidence of race discrimination. Right, Peña Rodriguez. So now he's trying to ride Peña Rodriguez back to the court. He's saying that under that case, uh, sexual orientation discrimination uh, gets heightened scrutiny, although the court hasn't decided that yet, but some lower courts think maybe it does. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, perhaps that should be a basis for reopening. Right. So this is his, his last pitch to try to escape the death penalty in South Dakota. Uh, and then It's uh, a fascinating case. Yeah. We actually talked to uh, Ethan Rice at Lambda Legal about it on our last podcast. Right. Very interesting. And the other uh, case that's been added to the docket uh, for the conference on the 12th is the attempt by proponents of conversion therapy to revive the New Jersey case challenge to the statute that bans conversion therapy for minors. Uh, they're focusing on a comment made by Justice Thomas in an opinion for the court last spring in a case involving uh, the free speech claims of operators of uh, clinics in California that exist for the purpose of discouraging pregnant women from having abortions. And California has a law that says you have to tell people about the availability of abortions uh, through the state. And they claimed it violated their First Amendment right. And uh, the court in the course of deciding that case in favor of the clinics who didn't want to be forced to provide this information, uh, said uh, there is no such thing as a different standard for evaluating professional speech, speech that is communicative but is made in the course of providing treatment or exercising one's professional uh, role. And uh, Thomas pointed to the Third Circuit case on conversion therapy and where he, where the court basically said this is professional speech and it, it gets a different level of scrutiny than just normal political speech mm-hmm. uh, because of the state's pervasive regulation of the healthcare profession. Uh, and so he sort of poo-pooed that, which was the basis on which the Third Circuit decided the case. And so now the opponents of the statute say that the Third Circuit should withdraw its mandate in the case and reconsider the case under an appropriate standard. And uh, the Third Circuit refused to do so. So their cert petition is asking the Supreme Court to grant cert and order the Third Circuit to reconsider yeah. the challenge. And, and uh, the, uh, the state and Garden State Equality, who is an intervening defendant in the case, both did not file written responses to the cert petition. Huh. And my understanding is they believe that it is such a meritless cert petition that it's going to be dismissed anyway. Why bother? Right. And they do have an understanding that it is customary for the court in a case where they think there's a there's some plausibility and the respondent hasn't filed any response to reach out to the respondent. The clerk will contact them and say, you know, the court would like you to respond to this petition. Mm-hmm. So, And they haven't heard anything from the court yet. Yeah. So it's on for April 12th, and the likelihood is that that one will be denied. But 
Who knows? The key gotcha. thing is that on April 12th, they once again will have before them those Title VII cases and that, that Oregon wedding cake case. Wow. And who knows? Uh, it could be that a few days later we will find out that next term there are going to be some LGBTQ-related cases on the active docket. Oh, we'll boy. see. All right. So let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll, talk, we'll travel down to Texas. All right, so we're back. A three-judge panel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit ruled by a vote of two to one that the state of Texas did not violate the Eighth Amendment right to cruel against cruel and unusual punishment when they denied gender confirmation surgery to a transgender inmate. The decision is pretty awful. In it, Judge Ho, uh, who is a Trump appointee, deliberately misgenders the plaintiff in one of the footnotes, noting that we use male pronouns consistent with the Texas Department of Criminal Justice's policy. He notes that sex is an immutable characteristic determined solely by birth. Um, All right, so tell us about the substance of this um, ruling here from the three-judge panel. Okay, so we've got to give a little background here for people uh, because we haven't talked a lot about prison uh, uh, transgender issues, although we report them very frequently in law notes. Right, yeah. Almost every issue, we have half a dozen articles by Bill Rold, our... uh, prison law specialist. Uh, basically, incarcerated inmates are totally at the mercy of the prison for their health care. Right. You know, this is, uh, they don't let you bring drugs into prison. They don't give you a leave of absence to go visit your family doctor or stuff like that. You're, you're stuck with what they're willing to give you. And uh, the Constitution doesn't directly say anything about this. But the Eighth Amendment does say that no one should be subjected to cruel and unusual punishments. And the Supreme Court has come around to the view that it would violate the ban on cruel and unusual punishment to deprive prison inmates of necessary medical care for serious medical conditions. Uh, And there is now pretty much of a consensus in the lower federal courts, the Supreme Court has never addressed this question, lower federal courts that gender dysphoria is a serious medical condition for which the inmate is entitled to some treatment. The question is, what treatment? It has to be medically necessary. And uh, a lot of prison systems have traditionally taken the view that the most that they are obliged to to provide is psychological counseling to help the person adjust to their situation. And uh, what we're usually talking about in these cases are uh, people identified male at birth who have a gender identity of female. Frequently, a gender identity of female not really acted upon or asserted until after they're incarcerated, sometimes before. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of the time, they're not already taking hormones when they're incarcerated. And the question is, are they entitled to get hormones so that they can at least initiate physical transition uh, to that uh, extent? And... Most prison systems traditionally took the view, and the federal prison system traditionally took the view, that we will not initiate hormone therapy in prison, even if someone's in for life. We will not initiate it. And that barrier has been broken down many times now. Uh, There is a, a growing consensus in the federal courts that at the least someone with a strong case of gender dysphoria is entitled to hormone therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, But then the next step is, what about gender confirmation surgery? Right. And there we have yet to have a decision by a federal court of appeals that is final and binding that orders a state to 
provide uh, surgery. Uh, the closest we've come to that is in the First Circuit, we had a three-judge panel in Michelle Kosilek's case which said yes mm-hmm. uh, to surgery, which was then overturned on bank, which in the First Circuit at that time was a five-judge panel. So the two people on the two-to-one panel who voted for it were the two dissenting judges oh. mm-hmm. in, in the on bank. And then in California, uh, we don't have a final decision on the merits by the Ninth Circuit. We do have some trial decisions. We have one where the state allowed the transgender inmate to be paroled from prison early in order to avoid providing surgery at the demand of the trial judge. Mm. And there was some in- interlocutory appeal stuff going on in there, but we didn't have a final merits decision for the Ninth Circuit. There are a few circuits that have issued decisions uh, reversing district court dismissals and sending the case back on surgery, but not ultimately a merits decision by the Court of Appeals ordering it. So if the Fifth Circuit had ruled in favor of uh, the inmate in this case, if they'd ruled in her favor and said she's entitled to surgery, the Fifth Circuit would be the first Court of Appeals to do so. Uh, And you can be sure that Texas would have asked for on-bank review, and in the Fifth Circuit it probably would have been reversed. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, looking, looking at it uh, objectively, to the extent that one could be objective about anything in the law these days, mm-hmm. uh, the question is, is it medically necessary? And one answer we've had is from the tax court of the United States, which several years ago said, yes, the expenses of uh, sex reassignment surgery, as the term is more generally used, uh, the expenses of that should be deductible under the Internal Revenue Code because it's not merely cosmetic. Because it is, in fact, we are persuaded by the evidence presented to us in a disputed case that it is medically necessary for some people with gender dysphoria to have the surgery. And what about the medical community? The medical community, according to the Fifth Circuit, is divided. And what that means is that in a case where experts are provided on both sides, there are experts on both sides. There are people who can qualify as experts under the federal uh, rules and the approach of the courts for evaluating someone's standing as an expert who will testify that it isn't necessary. And there are experts on the other side who will testify that it is necessary. Uh, The World Professional Association for Transgender Health, Mm -hmm. I worked hard to memorize that. Yep, WPATH. WPATH. They have published standards. And the published standards say that for many people with gender dysphoria, it is medically necessary, but they don't indicate that it's always medically necessary because gender dysphoria itself is a condition that exists on a continuum. But at any rate... uh, The American Medical Association, the World Health Organization... These these are all in favor of saying if someone has a very strong case of gender dysphoria, you should should give them the surgery, it's medically necessary. But uh, Judge Ho says... And it's interesting because the dissenting judge isn't dissenting on the merits. The dissenting judge here is saying there's no trial record in this case. This case was disposed of on motion. There was no expert testimony heard. We are deciding medical facts without a record. And what the majority does is they say, we don't need to hear all this because we've got the Koselleck decision from the First Circuit. They heard it, Hmm. or at least the trial judge heard it, and then it was summarized in the Court of Appeals decision. We can just quote from them. And they decided in the First Circuit that there was uh, not a consensus in the medical community that it's medically necessary, Uh and therefore it does not violate the Eighth Amendment to refuse to provide it. 
pretty categorically. They, because uh, one reason for remanding this would be to make a record, and the dissenting judge says, and Gibson has not had an opportunity to make a record as to her particular gender dysphoria and whether it's severe and all this kind of stuff, right. and whether it should qualify under the WPATH standards. Uh, we're, we're doing all this sort of in the abstract, in the absence of facts. And the majority sort of, their attitude seems to be, don't bother us with the facts. <laughs> We've got the Casillic decision, we're just going to follow it. Yeah. Uh, and so for the states in the Fifth Circuit now, for Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi, the rule is you can't get sex reassignment surgery unless the state volunteers to do it. And you you know, you know, talk about Bill Rold in Law Notes. He highlights a lot of these cases that are uh, mostly, They're most mostly of them pro are pro se. Yeah. Um, and I was doing a little bit of reading about Gibson. Gibson has identified as female since the age of 15. Right. In 1995, was denied hormone therapy. She's incarcerated in a men's prison. Um, the Texas... Uh, Department of Criminal Justice changed its policy in 2014, and she received access to hormone therapy. She continues to be denied the ability to keep her hair long, to have access to a sports bra, makeup. Um, TDCJ has denied those requests, saying it would be disruptive to the prison population. Um, according to the Attorney General in Texas's office, 333 prisoners identify as trans, and just 32 receive uh, hormone therapy. Yes. All right. Let's take a break, and when we come back, we are going to talk about some uh, concerned Christians. All right, we're back. So concerned U.S. pastors and a Christian business have rushed into federal court seeking a declaratory judgment that the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission's interpretation of Title VII to protect LGBTQ people from employment discrimination violates the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or RIFRA, and the First Amendment. But not just any court in... Um, in, among the federal system, we have them rushing to uh, Judge Reed O'Connor, who we'll talk about uh, here from Fort Worth. Uh, Judge O'Connor is notorious for issuing nationwide injunctions against um, Obama policies yes. <laughs> um, and regulations. So let's let's dig so, in well, here. Let's, let's let's talk about this case. Yeah. Uh, and I think uh, a lot of this case. Uh, this, this is a case that is intended to get to the Supreme Court to try to overrule Employment Division versus Smith and to overrule or narrow Obergefell versus Hodges. Okay. So, you know, uh, and so they, they carefully chose their judge. They carefully chose their plaintiffs. Mm -hmm. uh, the organizations behind this case, uh, other than the U.S. Pastor Council, uh, are not disclosed on the complaint. But it's very interesting that the lead attorney is one Jonathan F. Mitchell of Austin, Texas. Okay. Uh, who is Mitchell? He is a former Scalia clerk who went on, ultimately, to become the Solicitor General of Texas uh, and who has been nominated by President Trump. Of course he has. To be chairman of the Administrative oh. Conference of the United States. So uh, I think that there is undoubtedly some organizational support behind this. Uh, the U.S. Pastor Council identifies itself as an organization of more than a thousand churches nationwide. Okay. So why are they suing in Fort Worth, Texas? Wow. Uh, well, I, I think Judge O'Connor is quite a lore. And, and also the uh, business is called Braidwood Management Incorporated, 
it's a local Fort Worth business. Okay. It's actually a holding company that has several businesses, including a health club and a few other things. Uh-huh. Uh, and they claim they have about 70 employees. So Title VII applies to companies with 15 or more employees. Right. In fact, employment entities with 15 or more employees. It applies to churches. Yeah. But Title VII has a an exemption that churches and other religious institutions are allowed to discriminate on the basis of religion. Right. But not on the basis of their religious beliefs, on the basis of whether uh, a potential or actual employee subscribes to uh, the religious beliefs of that religious denomination. So, uh, and this this extends to all employees, regardless of what positions. It, it extends to hiring the janitors, you know, that's right. the common example. Uh, but religious institutions are not exempt from complying with the ban in Title VII on discrimination because of race or color or national origin, sex. <laughs> uh, so, you know, they have to comply with those unless we're talking about a ministerial position right. where the Supreme Court has found a First Amendment right under the Free Exercise Clause for religious institutions to discriminate on any basis they want in selecting their ministers. And then we get into what is a ministry. Yeah, well, that's, that's for another day. But the point is that, and- that these churches are alarmed at the possibility mm-hmm. that under the EEOC's interpretation of Title VII, as now endorsed by several circuit courts, yep. they might be sued for refusing to employ in a non-ministerial position a gay or transgender person. So, so, so why, did they, pick, then, why then, did they pick this judge? Well, they picked this judge because he's going to rule in their favor. Right. Also, Braidwood Management. Well, we teed up that they've, that yeah. they've issued, that yeah. Reed O'Connor has issued these nationwide well, injunctions. There are two nationwide injunctions he has issued that are of particular Which ones are they? Under Obamacare. <laughs> under the Obamacare regulations, health insurance companies are not allowed to discriminate on the basis of sex in providing coverage. And uh, the Obama administration construed that to include discrimination because of sexual orientation or gender identity. He issued an injunction against that, a nationwide injunction against that. Uh, And then uh, there is Title IX, which bans sex discrimination by schools that get federal funding, which is just about all public schools in the country and a lot of private schools too. Mm -hmm. Uh, So... uh, Obviously, there's a lot of litigation in the schools, which we've been reporting about, about transgender students and their uh, accessibility to uh, appropriate facilities, Mm -hmm. restrooms, locker rooms, etc. He issued a nationwide injunction against the federal government enforcing Title IX on behalf of transgender students seeking uh, facilities access. Uh, So those were both issued, obviously, back during the Obama administration. They remain in effect. They're preliminary injunctions. The Trump administration abandoned appealing them. So they remain in effect. And the Trump administration doesn't believe in enforcing those provisions anyway. Uh, So uh, there's a record here. So there's a record here uh, that and and if you look at his preliminary injunction decisions, it's clear that he believes the title. Well, that any federal statute banning sex discrimination solely means discrimination against someone because they're a man or a woman, not because of their sexual orientation or their gender identity. He takes a very traditionalist view, which is right in line with Jeff Sessions in a memo he issued when he was in, in charge of the Justice Department. 
uh, and that's the Trump administration position. So if this but, makes uh, it up to so, this, uh, so, did you well, want to talk more about Well, that? I want to talk about why Braidwood is in this. Uh, oh, go ahead, yeah, I mean, please. Braidwood is a private company, okay. but they want to claim a religious exemption based on Hobby Lobby and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Uh, they're saying that under the Hobby Lobby decision, uh, they have uh, a right to have the EEOC enjoined from enforcing Title VII against them if they are charged with discriminating against someone because they're gay or trans, because uh, the owner says it is against my religion. And it's a closely held corporation. And it's a closely held corporation. It's like Hobby Lobby. Yeah. But they say we don't only rely on RIFRA. We rely on the First Amendment because we argue that Title VII is not a neutral law of general application. And the basis for that argument is General uh, Title VII has an express exception for religious organizations. Therefore, it's not of general application wow. because there are exceptions. And therefore, Employment Division versus Smith does not apply to Title VII cases, which means that uh, any employer in the country who has religious objections to complying with Title VII on any basis, on, you know, race, color, whatever, if they have religious objections, they should have a First Amendment right, which means the state has to have a compelling interest that has to be narrowly tailored, and we go through the whole thing because that was the state of the law prior to Employment Division versus Smith, which is why it was such a controversial decision in mm. changing the law on yeah. First Amendment free exercise. So they're putting all of this in the mix. Yeah. They want a nationwide injunction. They want the EEOC and the Justice Department to be absolutely prohibited from enforcing Title VII against them. They... Uh, they want uh, to be excused from the requirement that the EEOC has that employers subject to the act put up posters advising employees of their rights. So they threw a lot of stuff in there, hoping that something sticks, obviously. Yeah. So if O'Connor issues the preliminary injunction, which I think is predictable, then the question is, how does it get to the Fifth Circuit? Right. If the Trump administration decides they're not going to defend the EEOC, we need interveners here. Right, because the EEOC now is... Well, the EEOC doesn't have a quorum at the moment mm -hmm. because Trump's nominees from last year weren't confirmed by the Senate because he included High Feldblum. So now Feldblum is withdrawn and she's actually joined a law firm and uh, he's got to come up with a new Democrat to appoint because the remaining two members of the commission are the last Obama appointee standing whose okay. term still has a year to run, I think. And there have to be... And the acting chairperson who's a Republican. And there have to be no more than three members of the same party. So Trump has to come up with a new Democrat and two Republicans. And one of the Republican people who he nominated uh, last year has withdrawn saying that I can't put my life on hold any longer. And, you know, I have very little sympathy for Mitch McConnell on anything in the world. But his invocation of the nuclear option the other day in the Senate to change the rules so you don't need six, so you don't need to wait 30 days on uh, confirmation of commissioners and things like that and, and district judges. Uh, somehow we've got to get the EEOC back to having a quorum so they can actually vote on cases and stuff. There's quite a backlog there, and it's. It's true of some other agencies. Yeah, but too. it's his members who want yes. to break the EEOC right. anyway. They yeah. they have no interest in confirming. So I'm saying folks. very very little sympathy, but <laughs> I can understand the frustration that they couldn't get people through. But then when you look at the quality <laughs> oh, of the people, please. when you look at the quality of the people <laughs> they were nominating, are, are, but one of them was high hashtag Feldman. Merrick Garland. Yes. I ha we have no sympathy. No sympathy. No sympathy. For okay. 
take but, uh, you, but the point is this, <laughs> this 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 case on the one hand this case may become totally irrelevant okay because if the supreme court grants cert in the title 7 cases that we've got pending up there then this whole issue is put off till next year when they hear the case. This case undoubtedly goes on hold okay. at that point. Right. Unless O'Connor wants to just be daring and go out and issue a nationwide injunction anyway. Uh, but this this case will be sitting there standing in reserve in case the Supreme Court denies the cert petitions. Right. Or in case the Supreme Court upholds the EOC's position, which is not totally inconceivable. I mean, I, I know very few people who want the Supreme Court to decide the merits of this case as it's presently constituted. All right. Okay. So um, why don't we go right to our Of Note segment, No Need for a Break. Uh, Art, what do you have for us? Of Note segment. Should a 15-year-old transgender high school student be entitled to get a name change, a legal name change? You'd think that would be uncontroversial. But in Ohio, a probate judge... Despite extensive testimony about the parents and the psychologist and the doctor and starting hormones and getting a legal name change, that just seems to be part of the thing. You know, you get a legal name change. And, and the father testified. You know, the judge said, why now? Why not wait till he, they're an adult? You know, why do it now? And, and the father said, well, uh, our child has been displaying considerable anxiety and and depression about that their legal name doesn't match up with the name they're using in school. And every time there's a substitute teacher because the name on the roster is their legal name, they're misnamed. Right. And uh, on their records, on their official records, right. the name is wrong. A whole and, host and of reasons 15 why years old, in one year, we'll be applying for a driver's license. And we got to have a legal name change right. if the license is going to be in that name. And and we're thinking maybe foreign travel, passport. Sure. You know, we need a name change. Yeah. And the probate judge said no. So it went up to the Ohio Court of Appeals. Uh, the name is In Re Change of Name of HCW. Okay. Uh, the name that HCW wants is EJW. Okay. Uh, and uh, the Intermediate Court of Appeals, uh, the 12th Appellate District, reversed and said the judge should be applying a, a list of factors, a list of questions. And one thing, the majority said, one thing we think they should do is they should pay a lot of attention to what the, the parents, parents want, want in this case. I thought you were going to tell me that the parents no, didn't want to. These parents are advocating for their child. Good. They have oh. accepted the fact that their child is transgender right. and is transitioning, and they want to make their child's life as free of uh, artificial barriers and right. problems as possible. That's what they want. Now, the, the concurring judge said, I wouldn't necessarily put so much special weight on the parents. You know, parents aren't always so understanding in cases like this. That's true, You too. know, and there are a whole bunch of questions about the maturity of the child and how long they've been in treatment and how far along they are and all this yeah. kind of stuff. And so the concurring judge says, I would, you know, use the whole repertoire and the I factors, wouldn't overemphasize right. the parents. Gotcha. That's true, but, too. But, right. But, you know, it's, it's ultimately it's a good decision uh, in the sense of saying that a transgender person shouldn't have to wait until they're an adult to be able to get these legal documents, stuff like that. Right. That's fascinating. Well, thank you so much, Art, and thank you for listening. Uh, this and future podcasts can be found on iTunes or at legal.podbead.com. Follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. We'll be back with a new Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT podcast in April. <laughs>